This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Thursday, July 6th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's a controversy about geopolitics, who has the rights to an island chain, and essentially the shape of the continent of Asia. It is all playing out the stupidest way possible about the movie Barbie. Barbie is a live action version of the beloved children's toy. Margot Robbie stars as Barbie. Greta Gerwig directed. Seems like they got too much talent for the underlying source material. But anyway, there is a controversy surrounding a scene in the upcoming picture, which has been shown in the trailer that features a world map with an outline of what is called the Nine Dash Line. Vietnam calls the Nine Dash Line the cow's tongue line. In fact, V. Kien Tan, the head of the Vietnam cinema department, confirmed that Barbie was banned in his country due to the illegal image of the cow's tongue line. Well, we see a map. To call it a map is, in my opinion, quite unbelievable. I cannot believe that this is going on over this so-called map. I'm not even really able to portray in words what the world map looks like in the movie Barbie. Here's a sound that maybe gets at it. So this quote-unquote map is just a bunch of splotches of color with one splotch labeled Asia. I think one's labeled Africa. Can't read any of the other writing. These splotches do not correlate to the continent's positions in the world or their shape. It is as if monkey threw Play-Doh at a wall. To get anything other than that this is a fictional piece of plastics opinion of geopolitics is absurd, but Vietnam apparently took offense. And then Ted Cruz weighed in blasting Barbie's filmmaker, Warner Brothers, because Vietnam is banning the film, which Warner Brothers doesn't like. Cruz criticized Warner Brothers after the announcement that the film was being banned because apparently the map, though it's not a map, it's colorful splotches, shows a depiction of the world that China would like if China can discern these splotches better than the rest of us. Cruz tweeted, I guess Barbie is made in China. All right. And then, according to National Review, Representative Mark Green, Republican of Tennessee, who has written the Screen Act, stopping communist regimes from engaging in edits. And this act aims to protect Hollywood studios from Chinese pressure. He, Mark Green, denounced the Chinese Communist Party. He denounced China. What did China do? Talking about in this specific case, not with the Uyghurs. It is Vietnam censoring the film. Green explained to the National Review, quote, the CCP's, Chinese Communist Party, censorship reaches across the entirety of our film industry. That is why my Screen Act is so essential to ensure taxpayers never subsidize this censorship. Now, if you're trying to keep Screen Act straight, this is not Senator Mike Lee's Screen Act, that is the shielding children's retinas from egregious exposure on the net. No, this is the stopping communist regimes from engaging in edits now. 
But does Representative Green know that Vietnam is also a communist regime? And they are, in fact, in this case, the ones doing the censoring. But Vietnam is a communist state. It is a one-party state, that party being the Communist Party of Vietnam. I mean, U.S. and Vietnam gets along pretty well now. We agree with their version of the map, not China. Although it's not a map, it's colorful splotches behind Barbie. But Vietnam's just as communist as China. Unlike China, in this specific case, they are engaged in censorship. And unlike everyone else in the story but you and me, they understand Barbie to be far from an authority on matters of cartography. This is why I am urging you to support my Screen Act, stopping classification regarding exaggeratedly empty-headed names. It is also why I'm urging the studios not to allow depictions of any maps, flags, or references to Tibet in the upcoming film, Hopscotch, The Adventure Begins, nor in any other works in the MCU Mattel Cinematic Universe. On the show today, it's an entire show interview, a whole show dedicated to two extremely interesting men. Darren Asamoglu is a professor of economics at MIT, the author of Why Nations Fail, and the book we talked about a couple of years ago, The Narrow Corridor. He has co-authored with fellow MIT economics professor and former chief economist to the IMF, Simon Johnson, a new book. It's called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Two economists, one podcast host, and one entire society waiting for the dividends of innovation. It's all up next and for the rest of the show. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my hair, undress me everywhere. Imagination, life is your creation. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? A couple of months ago, I had uh, Brad DeLong on to talk about his book, Slouching Towards Utopia, which looked at the past, I don't know, 150 years in over 500 pages, deciding what brought us to this point economically. And I said to myself, inadequate, 150 years, not nearly enough. We need to go back a millennia (laughs) and we need to get two esteemed economists and thinkers on to discuss this. Which brings me to my guests, Simon Johnson and Duran Asamoglu, who have written Power and Progress, our 1,000-year struggle over technology and prosperity. Simon and Duran, welcome. In your case, Simon, welcome to The Gist. And in your case, Duran, welcome back to The Gist. Wonderful, Mike. Thank you for having us. 
Yep, thank you. Okay, so we have established what each of you sound like. British accent and a Turkish slash Armenian accent, so now the listeners can tell you apart. One word in the title that stands out, and you, they, you want power to stand out, you want progress to stand out. They're bolded, they're in gold. But over, our 1,000-year struggle over technology and prosperity, that's an intentional choice. What is the over doing in the story you're trying to tell? Well, over is sort of critical there because the struggle is about technology. And that is the main idea that Simon and I are trying to convey, which is the view that technology is preordained or it is advancing according to some already determinate path is an illusion. And a lot of it is how we develop technology, how we use it. And this has sweeping consequences about the organization of society and who wins and who loses out of technological advances. And the word you use over and over again is the bandwagon, the idea that there is a bandwagon associated with technology. What do you mean by that? Well, that's our way of characterizing how many economists and innovators and policymakers think about the problem is that technology creates a powerful engine that will pull pretty much everybody towards prosperity. So that's the bandwagon and it will happen. If it's going to happen, it has to happen through the labor market, which is where most of us earn our living. So the productivity bandwagon is about technological progress, bringing higher wages to people. Right. So this idea is uh, let us cultivate an atmosphere where technology can happen, you know, sort of like lightning strikes. Maybe we'll have uh, a dry kindling so that when it strikes, we'd create a fire, but it will happen. And then it is our job to get out of the way to let technology work its magic because the history of humanity is that this is what technology does, thus lifting us along the way. And what you guys find is that is much more the exception than the rule. I question that, and I will question that in this interview. But my mind went to, as I think most of my listeners will, the Industrial Revolution. Wasn't this the most transform? It's called a revolution. Isn't it a revolution? Wasn't it entirely transformative? Isn't everything we're doing now a consequence of the sort of bandwagon of technology happening? What would you say to that? Yes, the Industrial Revolution was transformative. But in, in we, when we specify the bandwagon effect, Mike, what we say is, and, and what we hear from you know techno-optimists of all kinds, is technology occurs, productivity increases, health and opportunity may also expand, and everyone gains eventually. Well, the trick here is the word eventually, right? So the Industrial Revolution started, I, I would suggest, sometime in the 1720s. There's a silk mill, a big mill built outside Derby. I'm from Sheffield, pretty close to Derby. So 1720s, you're starting Industrial Revolution. We know for a fact that in the 1840s, small children as young as six were pushing carts full of coal deep underground with their heads in the 1840s. And that led to subsequent reforms and changes. Second half of the 19th century went better, okay? And that's part of the answer to your question. But 120 years, Mike, between the start of the Industrial Revolution and the benefits really spreading more broadly, 
That's a long time. And if we say to you, hey, Mike, great news, generative AI is going to change everything and, and everybody you, you know and care about will gain or benefit in 120 years, I think a reasonable response would be, you know, can we speed this up a bit, Simon? Why, why do we have to wait 120 years? Have we not learned something, anything useful from the past thousand years could, that could accelerate the sharing of the benefits, including given where we're starting at, at today's income level uh, and, and today's understanding of, of, of the social issues around technology? Mm-hmm. First of all, one could quibble about the start date. So you could arguably say, well, it was really not massively or industrialization did not massively occur for decades, maybe even a century after that. But I take your point. It's not as if technology happens and then each generation iteratively uh, improves. couple questions about this. In the 1700s, maybe you had to wait until the 1800s for technology to help. But now, in the age that we live in, hasn't everything gotten faster? Doesn't the technology implemented five years ago, isn't it affecting us now? Seems to be. I'm not pushing anything with my head. Well, good. I'm happy to hear that, Mike. <laughs> Except the, you know, the ideas of your book around inside <laughs> of it. <yeah. laughs> Figuratively yeah, pushing yeah, that. Yeah. Well, things have gotten faster, but that means damages could be faster as well. The problem is not just it takes long time for benefits to spread. You really need to make a lot of adjustments, institutional and technological, for the benefits to be realized. So in some sense, our beef with techno-optimism isn't that things are going to be slow or there are transition costs, that it there is a presumption that progress is automatic. And progress wasn't automatic. In the Industrial Revolution, we were fortunate. We, living today in the 21st century, are really fortunate that there were certain major institutional adjustments, really revolutions as radical as the Industrial Revolution, took place sometime starting around the middle of the 19th century that really ensured this. So we don't think that just letting things take place the way that they had done in the 18th century would have brought us broad shared prosperity had it not been for democratization, workers organizing and forming unions that and were thrown into jail for doing that, The government stepping in and investing massively in public infrastructure, improving sanitary conditions, healthcare, massive investments in schooling, and the direction of technological change going away from the most draconian aspects of surveillance, discipline, and automation towards a a more human complementary direction. And all of these were choices. And the question is, Are we so enlightened today that we don't need the institutions, we don't need the redirection, we can just leave everything in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and Sam Altman and they'll do the right things for us? No, I don't think so. I would add, Mike, also, if we'd written this book in 1980, what we would have said or should have said would be, you know, problem solved. For a long long time, we've struggled to ensure that increased productivity gets translated into shared benefits for pretty much everyone. And, and you know what, end of the 19th century, early 20th century, we sorted this out. And, and that's what really uh, we delivered in the United States after World War II and other countries um, did, did likewise. But that, was 19, that would have been 1980, Mike. Today, I think we're much less confident because it feels like we've gone backwards in terms of that translation or, or the way the bandwagon effect plays out or, or doesn't play out. So we, we've lost a lot of the countervailing powers. The government doesn't intervene in ways that, 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 that are 
effective enough anyway, uh, worker power is much weaker than, than it was across the industrialized world than, than, than in 1980. So we are in the hands of the techno-optimists. They push very hard on innovation. They tell us everything is going to be better. But to us, it feels like we've gone back. We've receded to some point prior to the modern shared prosperity era. And, and the question is, couldn't we do better? Aren't there ways to particularly develop technology and shape the direction of technological change, to Daron's point, so that it, it's pulled towards, from, from the get-go, not as redistribution, not after the fact, but from the get-go, we're creating more new tasks and, and more innovations that really directly help people be productive and get paid more. Yeah, and things could be better. Things could always be better. But 1980, this point that you led us to as where it looked like we had reached the pinnacle and we've declined since then, of course, you know, I don't have to tell you, couple billion people have been pulled out of extreme poverty since 1980. In fact, whatever happened with the Industrial Revolution to improve the lives of the industrialized slash Western world, that has happened maybe even more impressively and faster in places like India, China, and throughout Asia. So, I mean, there, there's a number of implications of that. Maybe it's just, I guess the simplest one is things haven't really gotten worse in 1980. They've just been a little disappointing for we in the Western world. Well, there is an element of that, meaning that there has been a transfer of technology and opening of trade that have benefited some developing nations. The question is, whether that could have been done without the United States and other industrialized nations moving away from their model of shared prosperity. And I think the, uh, the issue there is exactly the same as when it comes to technology, which is that, you know, the view that says, okay, fine, we have to put up with these costs in order to get the benefits, and the benefits could be better iPhones for you, or you know some amount of industrialization in India and China, you have to put up with the costs, and that's the view of you know technological change or globalization, like a river, and the only thing you to do is you either swim in the river or you put a dam and you completely stop the river, but the argument that we're making throughout the book is that you can redirect the river, you can avoid some of the costs and get some of the benefits. We don't have to put up with the costs of technological change in terms of losing our autonomy, losing our privacy, losing our jobs, and huge, massive inequality everywhere in order to get some of the benefits. And the same thing about globalization. We don't have to put up with all of the end of shared prosperity in the United States so that there is some amount of trade and technologies go to China and India. So I think there are better ways of organizing things. And no, I don't think we needed to have uncontrolled trade from China taking place at a you know, breakneck speed, completely destroying U.S. manufacturing for China to benefit from Western technologies and loosening some of the grip of the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, probably that has made things much worse in China, that it has completely cemented the rule of the Chinese Communist Party in the way that it was already ruling with an iron fist. So I think we have to look at, you know, are there ways of lifting the entire world out of poverty, including U.S. workers? So I, I think there's a, the, there's a sleight of hand in this several billion people statement, Mike. 
that we should confront directly, which is until 1978, China had one of the most disastrous economic and political regimes ever in terms of authoritarian, really crazy ideas and, and a basic oppression of people. And they backed away from that because it was, you know, it was a complete disaster and they recognized and, and Mao, Mao had left the scene and his closest followers. And as a result, things got a bit better. But, but, but think about the, the way they organized that society and think about the technology of control that they used and think about the way the Chinese authorities today, we talk about this in the book, are pushing the direction of technology towards more surveillance, more control, more suppression of dissent. Right. I, I, you know, this book will not be published in mainland China because they asked us for permission and showed us the small cuts they wanted to make, which were about a third of the book, because th this is absolutely at the heart of our issues with regard to big tech and, and so on and, and jobs, as Jerome laid out. But it's actually at the heart of their issues, too, Mike, in terms of what they're doing with technology and, 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 and what um, direction they're taking technology, which is fundamentally antithetical to the way we want to live in, in the West. We'll be back in a moment with Darren Asamoglu and Simon Johnson. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. We're back with Darren Asimoglu and Simon Johnson, co-authors of Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And I began my next line of inquiry with this query. So if the idea is, you know, with automation, there's some dislocation, but it usually results in more productivity. You write about this concept of so-so automation or the kind of automation that accrues to the benefits of the people doing the automating, but not people in general. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think those two are related, but still useful to distinguish. You know, the first one is take industrial robots. They have been completely transformative for some sectors in manufacturing, autos, electronics, chemicals, metals, quite significant productivity gains. But that doesn't mean that workers will necessarily gain. What robots do is that they are pretty good at having some amount of lower costs in a variety of blue-collar occupations, such as painting, welding, and so on. And if all that you do as an employer is install the robots and lay off the workers, you gain, your shareholders gain, but the workers don't. What Simon and I argue is that in the past, when we were automating, we also created new tasks and new jobs for workers. That was key for shared prosperity. Sometimes that happened within the same organization, such as the Ford Motor Company. Sometimes it happened in other sectors, for example, during the mechanization of agriculture, where new tasks came from clerical jobs and in factories such as Ford. But it's really critical for shared prosperity that all you do is not automation. Because if that's the path, shareholders gain, managers gain, but workers don't necessarily. 
But then things could be even worse, and that's what social automation is. When you automate customer service by putting some version of AI in there, it actually doesn't perform the task that it's supposed to that well. The nightmare for most people who miss their flight is to go through endless menus without talking to an individual because just their problems don't get solved. So that's social automation that you're not actually improving productivity, but you're still sidelining workers. You're still getting rid of the human element and creating these unequal effects on you know managers. Perhaps they don't do amazingly well because this is social automation. Shareholders, perhaps they don't become very rich, but the workers are the ones who bear the brunt. Right. So how is that different from saying the industrial or technological revolution is not going to be that revolutionary when the technology is not that great? Sometimes the technology isn't great. Sometimes, you know, companies have an interest in hyping their products, of course. And then we've all experienced, that's a great example. I'm on the phone forever. If I just could speak with a human being, they'd be able to sort this out. Oh, hype is so important. Hype is key. You know, the problem is hype. I mean, that's exactly what OpenAI has excelled in. And what hype does is that it makes you do these steps for automation much faster than you should do. So I'm not, Simon and I are not saying customer service should always be completely human. First of all, there are ways, even using our current technology, to help humans with AI or with other digital technologies. So if I'm a customer service rep and I get much better information about your problem and your background and other similar problems, I can help you better. But that's a human complementary use of technology. And ultimately, as we create a lot of new tasks and the technology for generative AI and large language models perhaps becomes much, much better than it is today, we can let many more of the customer service jobs be done by technology. So it's the speed at which we're doing, and it's how we're using the technology, because Simon and I provide several examples of where we could use the digital technology that we have today in a much more human complementary way and increase productivity. We're just misusing them, partly because managers are so interested or so obsessed with cost cutting, and partly because the sector itself, the AI sector itself, is so focused on machine intelligence and having the machines as fast as possible reach human parity and sideline the workers. And both of those are not the right path for us. I think that the the big idea, the biggest idea in the book, Mike, that is really hard for economists and economics is actually the easiest idea for non people who have not been indoctrinated with a PhD, which is economists like to think that if it happened, it must have been the optimal thing, more or less, right? That the firms are doing the profit mice amazing thing and 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 that acting in the interest of their shoulders, more or less, and so on. I think everyone else understands there are fads, there are fashions, there's hype, there's ideology. Business schools turned massively towards a particular version and interpretation of shareholder capitalism after 1980. Uh, that is really harsh on workers. Didn't used to do that. We didn't used to. Teach Teach that that wasn't the philosophy that was a choice that was made and and there's an interesting intellectual history there but that this is all part of the hype matters hype is key what we believe and and what the visions are and that's why we have um, you know a, a lot of material in the book including about the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal which is a a, a point a try the point we're trying to make is vision is everything where do these visions come from how do you shape visions how do you change visions that's a first order economic issue that's not really dealt with in economics. 
Right. There's so much in the book about persuasion because the general thesis is that most of this technology actually does change things. It's just that the benefits accrue to very few people. And when it was the days of the surf, so there's a lot of uh, excellent material about how there was excellent advances in how a surf might do their job, but the plight of the surfs was could still be considered a plight for hundreds of years because it was the uh, landowners who were accruing those benefits. And then the big change comes along and you're talking about the progressive era or unionization or just the idea that people say, hey, we want more of this. And then there are mechanisms. There's democracy, there's uh, rules about unions, there's uh, societal societal changes that allows people to start sharing in this genuinely transformative technology more. That's your big project. It's not that technology is mostly overhyped. It's not like that technology doesn't help us. It's just that the us is so few and there are ways to allow the us to be many, many more. So a couple questions about this. One is, have we really backslid? I look at unions in the union, private private sector unions in the United States, and their participation has gone down. But it's always compared to the state of things in Europe and the European Union. It has actually stagnated um, economically, but unions are fairly strong in Europe, too very strong in some countries such as Europe. So as an American, if I say, well, unions would solve this, what does the European example show us about this very important thing, which is unions? Well, look, I think Europe is not the same everywhere. There is a lot of heterogeneity. And we see some of the benefits and some of the costs of unions in Europe. I think the case where we see things going better is Germany, where broader type of worker voice and engagement in how companies are run actually ensures that when robots are adopted, also new tasks are created for workers so that it's not the sidelining of the human, but a broader process of creating jobs. And you don't see huge productivity losses or any type of downside. In fact, uh, evidence suggests that worker councils increase the adoption of new technologies in Germany. You also see, especially in the Nordic countries, that there isn't any type of decline in the real wages of low education workers as you do witness in the United States. Again, because unions and the general institutional structure is protecting low pay workers. But inequality increases pretty much everywhere in Europe. So it's not like Europe is completely isolated and insulated from the technological changes. And worker union relations can go wrong in Italy or France, where unions and employers come to loggerheads, as they have done sometimes in the United States and the UK as well. That doesn't lead to great outcomes either. That sort of conflict sometimes encourages even more automation because employers are trying to escape the unions. And uh, and generally, it may not even encourage investment in more human-friendly technologies. And, you know, U.S. has a unique position here. We are the home of Silicon Valley, which has been the engine of digital technologies for good and bad. The United States has benefited hugely from Silicon Valley, but also Silicon Valley's vision 
has guided some of these technologies in directions that are not so useful for broadly shared prosperity. Yeah, so we do try to say, Mike, very clearly, and we, by the way, we, we've had plenty of conversations with union people as well uh, in this country and elsewhere, that if, if the union unions focus on raising wages and are not involved in this new task creation, as Jerome as just said, that can actually accelerate the, the loss of jobs, the switch towards, uh, the switch towards automation. So it, it is not an easy task uh, for the unions to think about technological change in, in, in their broader uh, dealings with uh, their membership and with employers and so on and so forth. Uh, so nobody's got this exactly right. We want to be very candid about that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't raise the issue. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to help people understand what would actually benefit their members and the workers as a whole over the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And there are some ideas that I don't know if we could ever apply them here in the United States. Uh, the sector unionization, sectoral contracts, that seems really interesting. And unions on the boards of companies, that seems really interesting. But so often in what you do in the book, and I don't fault you for saying how much better could it be, for me, I say, well, compared to what? There's only two ways that we, I as an American, have to compare things. Was it ever better in the past, you know, norming for where the starting point was? Is it better elsewhere? And when I think of how the issues are discussed, say the issue of income inequality in the United States supposedly has such high income inequality, I'm sure you've seen the recent stats. I mean, Denmark, Scandinavian countries supposedly, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to paint a caricature, but one of these places that supposedly has a, a great solution to income inequality, in fact, has rampant in income inequality. And their top 1% holds something like 24 or 25% of the wealth. And it's quite similar to US levels. And then if you want to talk and you do a lot about the rise of populism and extremism, Sweden, another supposedly, you know, advanced country that the United States is said to, uh, we're supposed to emulate if you listen to wise people. Well, the neo-Nazis are in power there. And Europe as a whole, uh, they're doing better with unions. But you look at the economic stagnation on the continent. Sure, many there are many different countries and different economies are doing better, but the United States in GDP is doing so, so much better than Europe. So that's just contemporary. We could go back in history, but I do not see the model where the United States uh, as the engine of uh, the technological revolution should turn to and say, we should emulate. Do you? Am I just cherry picking the bad parts of other parts of the world that are getting it better? There is a little bit of cherry picking when you do it that way. And I could do the opposite type of cherry picking, and we should both be careful. So I could point out, you know, look, our life expectancy at birth and all sorts of other health outcomes are the worst in the industrialized world. Poverty in this country is the worst. But I think an even better frame, let's not just compare us ourselves to one European country. Let's compare ourselves to how the United States was growing in the past. And if you look at this country's own growth performance in the three decades that followed World War II. We had real wages, median real wages, growing at more than 2.5% a year in real terms. And since 1980, it's much less, about half a percent growth. So workers are not benefiting and when workers don't benefit, yes, there is a little bit faster GDP growth. That's why labor share is declining. But a lot of that is going to the multi-billionaires. So it's not becoming more broadly shared. And I think that's the 
image that we should try to measure ourselves with. Can we not go back to the type of better growth, both faster and more broadly shared? It's not just compare ourselves to Sweden. It's comparing ourselves to what we were able to achieve for quite a while. So I want to take issue, Mike, also with your framing of, you know, is there something better uh, either out there or something better in the past? You know, don't take this the wrong way, but you, you're reminding me of, of some prominent figures in, in Britain in the 1850s who were well aware that British cities were, were absolutely horrible places to live and, and the mortality from infectious disease was rampant. But they're like, you know, it's always been like this and who's doing this better? And along come people like Edwin Chadwick who say, you know, Here's an idea. Let's use existing technology to bring running water into people's uh, houses and use that to flush the waste out. And, and that was a revolutionary idea. It had never been done anywhere in the world, ever. And um, it had never been done in Britain before. And it transformed sanitation movement, which was the key part of this, transformed what it meant to live in cities, how productive people could be in cities and, and um lifespans also, right? Where did that idea come from, Mike? Should we, should we close, our idea, close our minds to all such possibilities that we could imagine improvements that are based on some, he had, Chadwick had some incremental changes, but he also changed, he and the people around him changed the direction of technological innovation around sewer pipes, for example, and, and, and also large scale um, local municipal infrastructure. No, no, so, we shouldn't. That's why I think that it needs to be uh, regulated and steered in the right direction, but that's why I'm pretty glad that my country has Silicon Valley and other countries don't. I'm embracing technology, be it the technology of wastewater disposal or the technology of uh, whatever whatever they're dreaming up and whatever Elon Musk is working on next. The, the Britain in the mid-19th century, complete, the elite, completely, including the aristocracy, by the way, completely bought into techno-optimism, let them build it. Manchester was, you know, a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred steam engines pump, burning coal, pumping out polluted, polluted air. Okay, that, that was this was literally unfettered techno uh, technology created, dri private sector driven process. The question, Mike, is if if that's what you got, and that is what we got in the United States, is there is there any way to think about sharing the benefits? dealing with spillover effects, improving outcomes for more people within that model without, sure, destroying the golden goose. You know, I understand that metaphor. We, we are not trying to stop technology. We are not trying to uh, over-regulate. In fact, if anything, we're saying be extremely careful in terms of determining, you know, we're not in favor of robot tax, uh, for example. We're also not saying let's switch to universal basic income and let everybody, you know, just take some sort of handout. We're saying there are better ways to design work and, and to push the technology companies and the technologists, some of whom, are, of course, are our friends and former students. Let's try and push ourselves in that direction because nothing could be more fundamental. The name of the book is Power and Progress, Our 1,000-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. The authors are Simon Johnson and Duran Asamoglu. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure. And for Pesca Plus subscribers, there's even more of that. You really get a sense that uh, I do go deep and I try to let you in on the fruits of the depths that we achieve. If you wish to subscribe to Pesca Plus or just get an ad-free version of this podcast, Pesca Plus, by the way, also ad-free, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com.
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. And thanks for listening. It's Wednesday. It's Thursday, July 6th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca.